Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. We're going to dive deep into the Los Angeles Lakers defeating the Golden State Warriors in what essentially turned out to be a blowout in Game 6, 122-101. to We're going to talk about how the Lakers did it. We're going to talk about how they completely dominated the interior of Game 6 and made the Golden State Warriors way too much of a perimeter-based team. Then we're going to dive into the Warriors and talk about where they go from here, a very big offseason ahead in the Bay. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the Heat advancing over the New York Knicks. This is a series that I have not devoted a crazy amount of time to, if only because I felt like it got kind of dull after a certain point, and it wasn't really an exciting series in terms of tactical adjustments after game two, realistically. It just came down to whether or not the Knicks were going to make threes at an exceedingly high level and if the Heat would just miss threes at an exceedingly high level because of the way that the Heat defended the New York Knicks. We'll talk about all of that. We're going to talk about how Bam Adebayo dominated this game offensively, in my opinion, particularly with off-ball movement. Then we'll talk a little bit about the Knicks offseason, but not a ton. And finally, we'll go into the Phoenix Suns being eliminated by the Denver Nuggets last night. I do want to talk a little bit about the Nuggets at some point. I don't know that it will be today. I do want to focus more today on where the Phoenix Suns go from here because I think their offseason is slated to be arguably the most interesting in the entire NBA. Okay, with all of that said, that's two minutes of intro. Let's start with this Lakers-Warriors game six that resulted in the Los Angeles Lakers completely blowing out the Golden State Warriors. This was a blowout from the jump. This was a 17-point lead, 27-10, to midway through the first quarter. The Golden State Warriors, with the starting lineup that they employed, that I, in my opinion, was meant more to get stops at a high level because you're inserting Gary Payton in for one of Jordan Poole or uh, Kavon Looney, it ended up being a lineup that they really struggled to get stops with, and it ended up being a lineup that could not space the floor. That ended up being the biggest issue for me in Game 6 for Golden State. They took 48 threes in this game, 26 of them by Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson. It definitely felt like both Steph and Clay kind of had lost their legs by the uh, certainly the end of this game, if not in Clay's case, really even the first quarter, everything that Clay shot today came up short. Uh, I don't know what it was. I think save for just a little burst in the second quarter, it felt like for whatever reason, Clay was short on every single shot. 
in the Warriors will have real decisions moving forward about what to do with their roster in order to combat these spacing issues. But this team took 48 threes in a game where it started Gary Payton, Andrew Wiggins, and Draymond Green. And I think that because they started those three players, Golden State was very predictable on offense in this game. It was either they had no chance to score if they didn't pull Anthony Davis away from the basket because if you didn't involve the man that AD was guarding in a ball screen action, and the Lakers did a really good job, I thought, throughout this game, either in terms of cross-matching in transition or purposely doing it. I'm not quite sure what the goal was. They did a really good job of making sure that Anthony Davis was on different players at different times, which makes it just slightly harder for Golden State to get into specific sets in order to take Anthony Davis away from the basket uh, every single possession in a tried and true set. Like for instance, uh, you know, Golden State, we're going to go through tape here in terms of how the Lakers dominated, particularly with Anthony Davis on the interior. It felt like, they were a little bit more scramble brained throughout the course of especially latter portion of the first quarter and into the second quarter. It's just, they got like a superhuman performance from Steph where he went on an eight Oh run at the end of the first that really got them back into the game, got it to 31 to 26 Lakers by the end of the first. What, what I thought though was their strategy. They tried to get Anthony Davis involved in the second screening action of the set because the Lakers were kind of switching one through four, it felt like they were trying to get both LeBron and AD switched out onto the perimeter. They'd get, for instance, LeBron switched out onto Steph, as we'll talk about in one set that we're going to watch. And then they would run a set with Anthony Davis. And I think the goal was to pull both of those guys away from the rim and potentially open up some sort of action on the backside or just open up the lane in a real tangible way. And, just ended up being a little too predictable because when you play Draymond Green, Gary Payton in this version of Andrew Wiggins, you just don't have enough spacing on the court. So even though those two guys were pulled away from the rim, guys like Dennis Schroeder, D'Angelo Russell, Austin Reeves could really sag down to the middle of the paint, to the nail and make it so that the paint was just completely gummed up with Lakers all of the time, depending on who was guarding Wiggins, Green, and Peyton. And the Warriors certainly got hit by the injury bug here. You know, Andrew Wiggins with that rib cartilage fracture that was reported from that little bump that LeBron gave him in game five uh, underneath the basket late. Losing his spacing ability, losing his three-point shooting ability, the Lakers came into this game with the idea of we're going to make Andrew Wiggins prove to us that he can shoot threes with this rib issue. And Wiggins did not really have that ability. He goes 0 for 3 from behind the three-point line in this game. He goes 2 for 8 from the field overall. And that was a real problem because their big adjustment going into game four or five, I can't remember off the top of my head, I believe it was game four, was to start Gary Payton. And if you're going to start Gary Payton, you need that third floor spacer out there if you're going to start him next to Draymond Green. If Andrew Wiggins is not that third floor spacer, it creates a situation where 
the Lakers are just always going to be able to pack the paint. There's nothing that the Warriors could really even do in order to stop that, in my opinion. Uh, let, let's maybe just kind of dive into the tape here because I'm talking a little bit more about the Warriors and what they did. And at the end of the day, I think that it was really, really impressive what the Lakers did defensively, more so than a problem with what the Warriors did. Because the Warriors, let's just be real about this, they were limited in terms of what their options were off the bench. I thought Dante DiVincenzo gave them great minutes at the end of the first and into the early second quarter in order to try and make different things happen in terms of defensive energy. He made a couple of corner threes that were really impressive. He had a couple of cuts that really uh, opened up things for the Warriors. They also had Moses Moody. I thought that Moody maybe would have been a little bit more of an intriguing option than Gary Payton. They did go to Moody uh, at times throughout this game. He does play 15 minutes. Ultimately, the significant issue here for the Warriors is that Jordan Poole was unplayable. We'll talk about that momentarily. But let's kind of dive into the tape in terms of what the Lakers were doing that was particularly impressive here. Uh, Let's start. This is a set at the 10-23 mark of the first quarter. Uh, And what you're going to see here is just look at how good Dennis Schroeder is at getting back into these actions. I thought Schroeder up until he got ejected for that second technical foul was absolutely terrific in this game, fighting over the top, chasing Stephen Curry. I thought he played a critical role in Stephen Curry clearly getting tired by the end of this game and throughout the course of this series, Dennis's tireless efforts, I think were really, really important in terms of wearing Stephen Curry down. He gets back into this play. Uh, He does give up the angle, but the big key here again, as you can see, I want you to look in the paint as we rewind here. Anthony Davis recovers back into the paint. They set a secondary screening action with Clay Thompson and Steph ends up rejecting it. But at the end of the day, Anthony Davis is here sitting right in the middle of the paint waiting. And because the Lakers were always going to make Andrew Wiggins beat them from three, given his rib injury, LeBron is sitting right here in the middle of the paint. He just comes in. This is like a same side help. Typically, this is a no-no. This is exactly how you know what the Los Angeles Lakers goal was coming into this game. At the 10-20 mark of this first quarter, They're helping off of same side corner actions where Andrew Wiggins is the guy in the corner. That's just like a dead giveaway kind of, oh, that's Draymond. But regardless, it is a dead giveaway that they're helping off the same side corner every single time here when it's Dre or Andrew Wiggins. It was just a little bit too easy, I thought, uh, for the Lakers to collapse into the paint throughout this entire game. Here, you're going to see Clay. This is important. You're going to see the Lakers. They did a really good job early in this game getting back in transition. I thought that was a critical piece of this. You're going to see here, Clay going to drive baseline. Again, no action getting Anthony Davis away from the basket. Anthony Davis just rotates down. Clay is not going to go up when Anthony Davis is around. There's no point in doing it. He's going to contest, and it's probably like a 20% shot if he does it. He kicks it out here to Gary Payton, and Gary Payton is just not a threat. Nobody is worried about where Peyton is because of that. And because Anthony Davis is Gary Payton's guy here on this possession, 
you're going to see here that they just don't care and they're going to sag way off. Anthony Davis is completely gumming up any sort of potential penetration from Andrew Wiggins here. Wiggins uh, kind of dances, tries to get past D'Angelo Russell here. Again, he can't really drive. Anthony Davis is waiting if he tries to drive and tries to get past D'Angelo Russell. Even if he gets past him with this dancing, there's nothing he can really do because he's just not going to finish over the top of Davis. So, Again, here we go. Anthony Davis grabs this rebound. His presence in this game, I thought, was incredibly important for the Los Angeles Lakers. Here we go again, Steph dancing. And again, as you're going to see here, I mean, this is a switch from LeBron onto Steph at the 922 mark of the first quarter. A lot of the time they were switching one through four. Schroeder chases Gary Payton into the paint. You're going to see here again, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the time the Warriors were trying to get Anthony Davis pulled away from the rim in the second side action. By getting LeBron James onto Steph, you were getting both of those guys away from the rim. Here we go. AD plays at the level of the screen as he's been doing throughout the course of this series against Steph. Guards him pretty well. It just ends up being a situation where they have to switch it because LeBron just kind of peels off at the end of the day. That's another piece of this that I think is important. I think that they thought by getting LeBron switched on to Steph early, they would be able to force that one-on-one Stephen Curry-Anthony Davis matchup in space because LeBron throughout the course of this series has been a little bit more inclined just to execute peel switches as opposed to fighting through those screening actions. So here he gets the kick out and look, Notice how I mentioned that Dennis Schroeder in that initial screening action just went on to Gary Payton here. Look at where Dennis is on the low side of the court. Totally in the restricted area already. Does not care that Gary Payton is there. Just couldn't care less. Gary Payton flashes up to the wing. As soon as Schroeder sees Steph start this drive... He stunts in, and because he stunts in, Steph kicks it out to Gary Payton, thinking that that's going to allow Anthony Davis enough time to recover back into the play and use his length to impede Steph in that driving action. And this is just a shot that someone has to be willing to take. Gary Payton can't really shoot, but this is the issue of having Gary Payton and essentially two other non-shooters on the court in this game for Golden State tries to shoot it and nobody really cares that he's going to try and shoot it. They get the offensive rebound. Steph goes up or uh, clay goes up. I'm sorry. Missed the shot again. This is just one of those days for clay. Sometimes you're going to go three for 18 again, just didn't seem to have his legs there. Unfortunately Uh, again here, I believe you're going to see this is a screen action. This is essentially, I believe Dennis starts this by kind of icing this screen action. It looks like trying to get uh force Steph to go baseline a little bit there. This is a typical Lakers move in side ball screens, right? Notice this is not an empty side action. This is the side where Clay Thompson is on the court, uh, which means that Anthony Davis it's a little bit easier for him to cover ground when he knows he has that help defender there and can just shoot out onto clay potentially if he gets beat. Here we go. This is just Dennis fighting over the top of this screen. Look at this. Anthony Davis plays flat, does a great job at the level, contains Steph. 
And Gary Payton's been a really good screener, arguably an illegal screener throughout the course of this series, given how far his legs tend to be out away from his shoulders. Typically, your legs are supposed to be shoulder width apart in terms of illegal screening actions. Look at how Dennis just fights through, fights over the top, gets the late contest. That's what you got to do against Steph. You got to be willing to fight through those actions. Again, Schroeder did a great job of that throughout the course of this series. This is a uh, double drag screen in transition. This is for Jordan Poole here. Notice how Anthony Davis not nearly as high at the level against Jordan Poole. I think the Lakers came into this game saying, you know what, if Jordan Poole beats us, so be it. He's been terrible throughout the course of this series. And because of that, they were just willing to kind of chase over the top. And again, here is Wiggins. They're not that worried about Wiggins. They're going to try and force Poole to this baseline and to the sideline here. And they're just not that worried that Wiggins is going to get a wide open three again. I think they came in with the idea of forcing Andrew Wiggins to prove that with this rib cartilage injury, he was going to be able to beat them. Again, another thing you're going to notice here throughout the course of this, now that we're halfway through, Anthony Davis is completely dominating the defensive glass every single time a shot goes up here. Uh, Again, 555 mark of the first quarter. Initial screening action by Draymond Green. They switch it with LeBron James to get LeBron James onto Stephen Curry. Then you're going to see the secondary action come up to get LeBron and Anthony Davis into an action uh, with one another. This is an empty side ball screen action. LeBron does decide to chase over the top. In my opinion, it's probably because it's Wiggins screening here. Again, I think they wanted to make Wiggins beat them. And look, it's just easy to recover. If you don't think Wiggins is going to shoot, Anthony Davis is going to be able to get out onto him. He's going to be able to contain this dribble. He doesn't have to close out hard. He can close out soft, be able to take him into his chest and make it so that this is going to be just an easy contain. Schroeder gets the little strip there coming across in help. He gets the contest on Clay after the kickout. They get the offensive rebound. Clay goes up again, short again. One of those days for Clay, Anthony Davis uh, gets the defensive rebound again. Here we go. This is where Kavon Looney enters the fold at the two-minute mark of the first quarter. Throughout the course of this series, when I've broken down film, it's just been very clear that the Lakers thought Kavon Looney, the strategy with him, after the way that he really hurt the Kings in that first round series was just to completely sag off of them. The Kings played him a little bit higher. And because of that, the Warriors ran all sorts of off ball action, cutting toward the rim, 45 cuts, baseline cuts, you know, they're cutting from the slot. They're cutting everywhere, trying to find those little areas. They're running little exchanges to create backdoor cuts to the rim. By not playing as high when Kavon Looney is the screener or when Kavon Looney takes a dribble handoff, Anthony Davis will just shoot out eventually onto Steph, play up on his toes and force that uh, contested pull up or force Steph to beat uh, Anthony Davis there. Just going even under those screens is pretty wild for a guy like, you know, when when you're defending uh, Stephen Curry's screen, right? Dennis Schroeder gets over it. It's just a little bit too easy, right? So here, 
Another screen exchange, as we said, they're switching one through four for the most part in this game. Sometimes on side ball screens, they would not switch and they would kind of just force you to go toward the baseline in an ice action. But middle ball screens, almost everything was a switch. They switch Rui out on to Steph. Uh, Eventually, Rui gets beat because Rui isn't a great space defender. And look, like, if Anthony Davis isn't there, if Anthony Davis is defending Kevon Looney a little bit further out away from the rim, that could be an easier layup for Steph. Instead, he has to dump it off to somebody here. He dumps it off to Dante DiVincenzo, who again had a great little run here, but this is a great contest from Anthony Davis and a great defensive rebound, following it up with a real second jump here to be able to corral that defensive rebound. I believe that was either his ninth or 10th defensive rebound already in the first quarter. Now we're moving to the second quarter, uh, seven minute mark, seven fifteen mark of the second quarter here, uh, a kick out by clay in transition out to Wiggins. And look, this is, Draymond Green getting guarded here by Anthony Davis, and they're just going to have Anthony Davis sit in the paint. And look at how many dudes here are able to rotate into the paint. Anthony Davis is in the paint. You have a foot in the paint from D'Angelo Russell here. You have LeBron lurking weak side on Wiggins, who, again, they didn't really worry about guarding in this game. So that's basically three guys that are ready at all times to be there to collapse down on any sort of penetration that the Warriors were going to get. Here, again... The way that this set kind of works here, as you're going to see it, is Wiggins is going to reverse this out to Draymond. Draymond is going to kick it to Gary Payton. Payton's just going to kick it back out. And it's just there's not a whole lot going on here until Payton sets this little screen here, which is just a little mini like flary pin down for Steph to come off and to get up to the wing to shoot this three. Steph's going to make a lot of those. It's a pretty good set. I thought it was smart for Draymond to ask for the ball back and have Peyton go and set a screen. End of the day, though, it just didn't work for the Warriors in this game. And I think in part it's because they became such a perimeter-oriented team in this matchup. The Lakers did did an incredible job of forcing them into being a perimeter team as opposed to the thing that turned the Kings series was them getting backdoor cuts and finding ways to put pressure on the rim without necessarily putting ball pressure on the rim, without necessarily having to drive to put pressure on the rim. They did it through their passing and playmaking. When Anthony Davis is sitting back like that, you can't really do that as effectively, which makes it a lot harder for you to get any sort of real ball movement, which is so important for the Warriors to get teams into rotation and then to force all sorts of ball movement. Here we go at the two-minute mark of the second quarter now, two minutes, 20 seconds left. What you're going to see here, again, they don't involve Anthony Davis in any sort of action. And because of that, he's just waiting. He's just waiting. Steph can't possibly go up for this shot. This is going to get swatted, or it's an incredibly difficult floater here. Forces the kick out to Anthony uh, Andrew Wiggins here. Again, you're going to see on this backside here, Dennis Schroeder does an incredible job of chasing Stephen Curry uh, off of this screen here. Uh, just does an amazing job. Uh, you're going to see Dante come down. He's going to set this little screen and look at Dennis get around it. Dennis gets around it, gets right in front of Stephen Curry. Dennis Schroeder did a great job in this game until he got ejected. Uh, and again, this is 
Steph now just has to make something happen, but he has to make something happen when Anthony Davis is lurking at the rim. And here you're just going to see a beautiful weak side rotation. Doesn't even go up for it. It's just the presence of Anthony Davis. You have to be constantly aware. And Steph can't get all the way to the rim here because Anthony Davis is lurking. It makes him rush this little floater when it feels like he's almost kind of in between steps and off balance. He has to throw it up because if he goes all the way to the rim and tries to get on balance, that little window is going to close and Anthony Davis is going to come and protect the rim with impunity in this circumstance. Here we go again. This is a middle ball screen or uh, side. You know, this is a middle ball screen with Steph coming up, taking the screen, AD at the level. Schroeder fights over the top, gets back into the play. Anthony Davis, again, just sinks all the way back into the paint when Kevon Looney catches this ball. They're going to be more than happy if Kevon Looney takes the shot. He made one of them today in a late shot clock circumstance, but they're going to live with that every time it happens. Makes them reset with 13 seconds left on the shot clock, so you're going to be a little bit rushed here. LeBron gets over the top of the screening action. Kevon Looney's typically a really good screener. I thought he was a really poor screener in this game, honestly. Uh, LeBron fights over the top. They're going to force, uh, I believe, a pretty difficult shot here. Difficult shot. AD again, defensive rebound, completely locking down the paint. This is a set late in the second quarter. Seven seconds left. Clay goes up, takes this three-pointer. You're going to see Dante slide in. And just look at Anthony Davis lurking, always ready. This play was kind of the epitome, I thought, of the first half for the Los Angeles Lakers. Anthony Davis always there, always lurking, ready to anticipate, to read the play, to be that weak side rim protector. This leads into the Austin Reeves uh, play at the end of the first half that results in them ultimately uh, hitting that half-court shot and taking a big lead at the end of that quarter okay so this is where we're at the lakers dominated the interior against the golden state warriors i thought they dominated the interior against the memphis grizzlies i think there's a real case that outside of nikola Jokic and jimmy butler andrew or uh, anthony davis has been the best player in this playoffs at this point He's dominating games on the interior. I think he only scored 15 points tonight, uh, unless he got one late. Yeah, he got one late. He ends up with 17 points, but he has 20 rebounds. He has two blocks. He has two steals. Completely and utterly takes over the interior of a game. His presence changes the entirety, uh, the entire complexion of a basketball game just by being in there. That is the difference when Anthony Davis is right. Anthony Davis, nobody will deny, I think, that he is the most impactful defensive player in the league when he's healthy. I thought that was the case. I ultimately had him fourth when we did our Defensive Player of the Year votes uh, on this podcast. I had him fourth for Defensive Player of the Year, even though he only played you know 55 games, because I thought he was phenomenal. I thought he was absolutely incredible defensively this season. He carried the Lakers through portions of the year. And I think that he deserves that recognition at this point. If there's a defensive player in the playoffs, there's no circumstance where it would go to anybody else but Anthony Davis at this point. Has been absolutely incredible. The last thing I will hit on for the Lakers here, Austin Reeves. Uh, How about Austin Reeves? 23 points, five rebounds, six assists versus only two turnovers, seven of 12 from the field, four of five from three. Austin Reeves made himself 
an immense amount of money uh, in these first two playoff series. He's currently averaging about like 16 points, I, I think like five rebounds and like four and a half assists per game, something along those lines. He's been absolutely incredible every single time that he takes the court because you can trust him to make the right play. He's the kind of player that you win basketball games with because of how quickly he makes decisions, because of how quickly he's able to process basketball. It's not just the shooting. It's not just the driving ability, although he has both of those things and can pressure the paint, despite the fact that he's not some crazy athlete. It's the way he sees the game. It's the way he thinks the game. He's the perfect player to play off of Anthony Davis and LeBron James because of that ability to keep things in motion, to keep things you know, along the kinetic chain, to keep things moving with the ball. Austin Reeves has been phenomenal. He's been absolutely great throughout the course of these playoffs and don't sleep on the defense. He's not like, you know, an all defense level guy. He might not even be like a super above average defender necessarily, but he's slightly better than average. And if you can bring all that he brings offensively in terms of being able to make decisions, knock down threes, drive, pass it well, driving kick, pass in a lot of different circumstances. These are the kind of guys that get paid. And Austin Reeves is hitting free agency this summer. He'll be a restricted free agent. The most the Lakers can offer originally is a four-year, something in the ballpark of like $55 million deal. It's a mid-level exception contract. But he can go out in restricted free agency and get a bigger offer Something in the ballpark of four years, you know, I think it's like 98 to like 105 million, something like that. Depends on where the cap comes in. A few different things, right? Like there are a few things, but the way that it would be structured is the first two years he's at the mid-level. He is what is called arenas provisioned. And then the next two years of that four-year contract, teams are able to go all the way up to the max level for Austin Reeves. Think like, you know, $35 million, basically. 36, 37, whatever it is at the time. The Lakers can match that contract. The Lakers hold all of the cards here in terms of retaining Austin Reeves. But whereas coming into the playoffs, I thought there was a pretty real chance they had a real possibility to end up with him on that mid-level exception where it's something like four years, 55 million. There's no way that he's only going to get that much money now. I thought there was a chance he'd get a reason arenas provisioned before the playoffs. I think he's unequivocally going to now because he's shown that he can be a real impact player and difference maker in multiple playoff series at this point. And he's not done by the way. I think we're at the point where Austin Reeves is going to get something like four years, $75 million plus in free agency. And it wouldn't surprise me if it ends up being like four years, like $85 million. That, that's the reality of what the Lakers are going to have to pay to retain Austin Reeves. You know, a team like Utah, I'm sure would love him. Uh, a very smart guard that really fits a lot of what they're looking for right now. Bigger guard can initiate some offense, uh, would be a really good fit with guys like Walker Kessler, Lowry Markinen, et cetera. 
a team like Houston could desperately need somebody like Austin Reeves, who can be like a younger vet that fits within their age timeline, but also brings them real stability that they've lacked at times just from having a smart, high-level processor, having an adult out there. I think Austin Reeves would be great for them. A team like Indiana could use Austin Reeves. Every team in the league could use somebody like Austin Reeves. But particularly, I think the teams that have cap space this summer tend to be the ones that are rebuilding and that are younger, where Austin Reeves fits into their age timeline at a really high level. Austin Reeves is going to get paid this summer. He earns it. He has earned it at this point, and he deserves it. If I'm the Lakers, I'm matching anything. I want to be very clear about that. I think Austin Reeves is too important for them to let go. I think he's a more well-rounded, versatile player than Alex Caruso. And I thought they should have retained Caruso on the mid-level when Chicago signed that deal, signed him to that deal. The way that the structure of that deal would work for the Lakers, if he does get arenas provision for, let's say, four years, $80 million, they would have the option to either flatten the salaries out over the course of those years or maintain them for the first two years and then he gets like balloon payments. So if it's four years, $80 million, let's say, he would make something like $12 million in the first year, $13.5 in the second year. And then what would that be like 54 and a half in the next two years? So it'd be like 26 and 28 or something along those lines. These are all like fuzzy numbers that are estimates, but are in the ballpark of what it would be. I think that they have to match whatever it is to keep him. And I think that these playoffs have shown why he is so valuable to them because he's kind of the perfect running partner for these two stars that desperately need him. If I was the Lakers, how do I structure this deal? I think that you do have to talk to LeBron, see how many more years he's planning on playing. If he's planning on playing beyond the next two years, obviously it seems like he is going to play two years because of the Bronny factor. If I'm the Lakers, I'm probably more comfortable just having that deal be like, you know, 12, then 13, then 27, then the balloon payments out for Austin. Uh, if LeBron is not going to retire after two years, or is not planning to at least, everything changes, obviously, you never know. I think I probably want it leveled out a little bit. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what they end up doing. And of course, all of what I'm talking about, by the way, is subject to them changing something in the new CBA. We have not heard what the arena's provision necessarily looks like in the CBA yet. This could be slightly different in some regard. My guess is that it probably won't be, but that's just a guess. Uh, it, this could change uh, by, for all intents and purposes at the end of the day. Uh, we will see what the Lakers decide to do, and we will see what Austin Reeves ends up getting in free agency. I think it's going to be an exorbitant contract because of how valuable his skill set is to just about any team in the league that already has like real primary playmakers. Indiana has Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, Houston thinks that Jalen Green can be somebody that can be that primary playmaker and creator a la a Devin Booker. The perfect player to put next to him to help him realize that ceiling is Austin Reeves. So I'm fascinated to see where this goes. 
Miles asks, uh, does this version of Reeves exceed where you saw his ceiling pre-draft? For people that remember, I actually loved Austin Reeves pre-draft. I had him at like 32 on my board, 32, 33, something like that, just outside of the first round. I thought he was unequivocally a guarantee guy that a team should have drafted, you know, late first, early second, and given whatever money, you know, two-year minimum guarantee, you know, locked in, and then hopefully added on an option year at the end of it. Obviously, it's been reported that the way it worked was he would have likely been drafted somewhere in the 40s. They decided he and his representation, uh, Aaron Riley, AMR agency, decided to let him fall through the draft and ultimately sign in an advantageous position. And they found the Lakers, which has clearly turned out to be not only an advantageous position for him, but it's going to be an incredibly lucrative one where he's going to end up making not quite as much as like the top three or four picks, but outside of those guys, he's going to make way more in his first four years than anything outside of the top 10 for sure. So really, really sharp to bet on himself in Austin's case, uh, really, really sharp planning from the agency, I think to set him up to find this perfect situation in Los Angeles uh, that has now led to success. It's going to be, I think a little bit harder to, have someone fall through the draft like this moving forward because of the second round exception that now exists uh, for teams uh, in the draft under this new collective bargaining agreement. But Austin Reeves, tremendous player uh, and has made himself an exceptional amount of money here moving forward because of his game uh, and because of the way he fits around potential stars. Okay, we'll take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to talk about where the Warriors go from here because I find their future absolutely fascinating. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN. If you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game theory is 
offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord, and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, let's talk Golden State. Golden State gets eliminated here uh, a year after winning the NBA championship. I think that the process for this team getting eliminated started back at the 2020 NBA draft when they took James Wiseman. I think that they should have taken LaMelo Ball and rolled with it, to be honest. That is the reality, I think, of what should have happened at the time. They don't. They take Wiseman. Wiseman was always a project, is the thing. You knew that James Wiseman was going to take time. This is a team that did not have that time. And I think the Warriors in their front office made a bit of a miscalculation in terms of taking a player that they thought would be able to help them run two timelines concurrently. They could have a future timeline. And because Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson are as good as they are, they could have a present day timeline. I think you guys know that have been listening for a while how I feel about a two-timeline situation. There are no half measures in the NBA. You can't play both sides of it. You're either in or you're out. And if you're neither, you're nowhere. The Warriors last year ended up winning a title. They got nothing from those future players. Jordan Poole emerges. And unfortunately, we're now in a circumstance where they move James Wiseman for the Gary Payton contract this summer or this spring. I'm sorry. I was a little bit surprised when they moved uh, Wiseman that they chose to take back a contract that had multiple years attached to it because this is where the finances come into play. For the Warriors to retain this roster, and they saved like three or four million on the James Wiseman deal as compared to the Gary Payton deal, which ultimately results in like tens of millions of dollars of luxury tax savings. So they did save a little bit of money. But they're now at the point where if they want to retain this entire group, if Draymond Green ends up staying, 
you know, opts into this player option, negotiates an extension on top of it. If Clay Thompson opts into this player option, I would imagine that unless they negotiate something, you know, a longer term deal for Clay, that he'll opt into the player option. I do wonder if there is like some room around maybe Clay like opting out, them having his bird rights and then signing like a, you know, maybe like a 390 or something like that, 3100 uh, contract. I'm, I'm just kind of like speculating a 3100 would save them something like $10 million uh, moving forward, which would be really, really valuable for them. I don't know if Clay necessarily wants to take a pay cut uh, for next season, but it could end up being more than he makes long-term. Clay had a interesting season this year that we'll talk about momentarily. But by moving Wiseman for Peyton, they now are set up to where they have to make real decisions because I don't think anybody wants to pay $500 million for a team that just got eliminated in the second round. If they had won the title, things might be different, but they didn't win the title. They did end up getting, what, five or six home games, which ended up making them a lot of money. Uh, Don't sleep on the revenue from Warriors home games at the Chase Center in the playoffs. Those probably really mattered for the Warriors' bottom line this year. But the question now for the Warriors is how do you make up this difference? On top of that, how do you maintain being competitive when you can only offer, you know, look, Jamichael Green started multiple games in this series, was a valuable depth piece at times for them this year. Can only offer him something like three and a half million dollars, give or take, you know, $300,000, something like that. They can only offer Dante DiVincenzo, I think, 5.5 million, 5.4 million, something like that, because the new CBA limits teams who spend this exorbitantly. They will not have a mid-level exception, a mini mid-level for taxpayers to be able to pay a new player this offseason. So they're basically going to have to use you know, the non-bird rights on Dante to retain him, which is tricky. Maybe they end up retaining Dante. Maybe they don't. I think that if you're Dante DiVincenzo and you really love Golden State, you could take the Bobby Portis model, which for people who remember, he actually ended up kind of taking a like smaller deal in Milwaukee in his second season there in order to get early bird rights and then set himself up to be able to get a deal on his early bird rights for the mid-level exception, you know, level number, which is how early bird rights work. If you have a guy's early bird rights, you can sign him up to that mid-level exception. So I do wonder if there's a case for Dante to do that. If he really loves golden state, I don't know how he feels about it. I don't know if that's something that's realistic for him, but it is an option at least that could be on the table in a way that people might not be thinking about the big decision here is Draymond Green's Draymond Green is a player option for $27.6 million next year. If I'm the Warriors, I am retaining Draymond Green. Look, I'm very clear. I'm a mark for Draymond Green. I think he is one of the 75 best players of all time. And I thought it was crazy that people think that Clay Thompson is a bigger piece of this 
dynasty than Draymond Green is. He's the Splash Brothers are a really cool thing. Draymond Green is the one who changed defense and the way it works in the NBA, like, you know, eight years ago. He's the one that this season, when he was off the court, the Warriors had like a 115 defensive rating. When he was on the court, they had like a 109 and a half offensive or defensive rating. He's still at an exceptionally high level. He just made an all defense team again this past season. And I know what happened with Jordan Poole in the preseason. But Draymond Green is the guy that gives this team its edge. He's the guy that gives them everything that they've had defensively, in my opinion. Clay Thompson was a great defender on the ball, and he allowed the Warriors to not have to use Stephen Curry against the best ball handlers in the league for years. Post-injuries where Clay missed two years, Clay is not that guy defensively anymore. He's much better guarding up the lineup where he doesn't have to like move as quickly and as well laterally anymore. It's what happens when you turn and when you hit your 30s coming off of multiple significant surgeries to your legs. I think Draymond is the guy that you retain here, even if it means getting rid of Clay Thompson. I don't think that they're going to do that. I think that they will retain all three of these guys. But that's how much I value what Draymond Green brings to the table for the Golden State Warriors. He's kind of everything for them that Stephen Curry isn't. You really need him, in my opinion. So how then do you make up the money in order to retain Draymond? And my guess is the way that this works is Draymond Green, maybe he opts in and signs an extension on top of it. You know, maybe he opts out, signs an extension. I don't know. But I would retain Draymond Green at all costs. I would see if there's a world where I could try to negotiate Clay Thompson to opt out of his player option and then sign a longer extension with a lower number in the first year that guarantees him more money longer term than maybe he might get. There might be a middle ground there. I think there's a chance there's a middle ground there. Or you could move Jordan Poole. I would absolutely be exploring moving Jordan Poole. I don't know what Jordan Poole's value is. It's probably not very high. Jordan Poole just had one of the most disastrous playoff runs for a recently rookie extension signed player that I can ever remember. He was largely unplayable. Uh, throughout the course of these playoffs. Uh, Look, if you look at the full season numbers, they're not disastrous in terms of like per game stuff. He averaged 20 points, four and a half assists, you know, 43% from the field, 33% from three, 87% from the line. But like they just signed him to a four-year $130 million contract, 120, whatever it was. You can get that production for whatever Jordan Clarkson's going to sign for this year. You can get that production from whatever Malik Monk signed for last year, which was the mid-level exception, two years and you know 18 million or whatever it was. You can't pay Jordan Poole 30 million a year 
and him play like he did this year. And you can't pay him 30 million a year and play like he did in the playoffs. This is a team that has real financial issues to look at moving forward. If I'm the Warriors, I'm looking to move Jordan Poole unequivocally. And I am trying to find a situation where I can get back some sort of player that is a ball handler that also allows me to save about 10 million in salary. Like I I was trying to find who I think could be like an interesting fit there in terms of team. It is a little bit tricky, I think to find it has to be a team basically with cap space. Basically I was wondering about Detroit potentially as a fit here. Could Detroit look at Jordan Poole, you know, bringing him home to Michigan and trying to find whatever it was that made him special over the course of the last year and a half? Is there a way that, you know, Detroit would just like value Jordan Poole? Uh, they don't really have like a dude right now, Detroit that like really lines up in terms of being like a high level ball handler necessarily that is certainly signed for next year. Like I, I guess like in theory, like Alec Burks could fit this cause they have a team option on him, but I don't know if Burks really fits in terms of like having an actual ball handler out there. They need somebody that can actually really create offense in the minutes that Steph is out there. Miles brings up Terry Rozier. Honestly, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, God, watching a LaMelo Jordan Poole backcourt, I don't want to do that to Steve Clifford. I think that Steve Clifford like might quit on the spot if you made LaMelo pair with Jordan Poole as your starting backcourt. That sounds uh, like a recipe for disaster. So I don't know if I like that necessarily. But it has to be a team like that. It has to be a team that has cap space that might be willing to send off like a ball handler. Like if I remember correctly, I think the Warriors had some passing interest in Chris Duarte pre-draft and Chris Duarte did not have a great year in Indiana this year. You know, he's a little bit older. He's 26. He has two years left on a rookie scale deal. Maybe like a Jordan Poole, Chris Duarte centered kind of deal involving Daniel Tice. Maybe they could see Jordan Poole as like a long-term answer for Buddy Heald. Like, could you do like Buddy Heald and Chris Duarte for Jordan Poole in 19, maybe? I'm just like kind of spitballing here. I don't even know if I love that move for the Golden State Warriors at a high level. But what that move does do is it would set you up with an expiring deal. And of course, all of this is dependent upon the team acquiring Jordan Poole, valuing him in some way. Uh, I don't know that the Indiana Pacers like Jordan Poole. I wouldn't trade for Jordan Poole's contract at this point. But I'm betting that somebody in the league would take him and would be happy to take a shot on a player that is incredibly creative offensively. The problem is just Golden State is too restricted financially unless Clay Thompson and Draymond Green decide to take pay cuts in some way. I I don't know where this goes with Jordan Poole, 
But there's also the factor of if we're retaining Draymond Green, it might not make the most sense to retain Jordan Poole, given what happened in the preseason. If I have to pick one of those two, I'm taking two years of Draymond Green over the rest of Jordan Poole's career every day of the week. And I might look silly saying that Jordan Poole is an incredibly creative, talented guard. But to me, it's just not even a question in my mind. Uh, which one helps you win games more during this run where you have Stephen Curry still in his prime? So yeah, the Warriors have an interesting offseason ahead. Uh, they do have that 19th overall pick, which is interesting. Clay Thompson is extension eligible. Draymond Green, as I mentioned, is extension eligible. I don't know where this goes if you're them. I really don't. I think that there are a number of avenues they could take, but I'd imagine that whatever avenue they take, it involves them not having a $500 million salary ticket for next season. We'll see if they can figure that out. Okay. Let's jump and talk about the Miami Heat. What I want to talk about with the Heat here and what I want to talk about with this series in general is how good Eric Spolster was and how they manufactured offense with a Jimmy Butler that was clearly not at 100%. Jimmy Butler is a player that generally operates at like 70% of his possible speed, right? He is a more methodical driver. He is a more deliberate player in the way that he gets to his spots. He still gets there every time. He's the epitome of the kind of player that proves the corollary. You don't need to have explosive athleticism to get to your spots whenever you want to. Jimmy Butler proves it every single game. But a lot of the time he does it by changing speeds in some way. And I think that what you're seeing right now is that he can't really change speeds at a super high level yet. I think that getting a few days off because this Celtics 76ers series went to seven games is going to be incredibly helpful for Jimmy Butler and is going to be incredibly helpful for the Miami Heat. There's a non-zero chance I pick them in this next series because – Jimmy Butler is incredible. And do you, if you're a Philadelphia fan, do you want to face Jimmy Butler in a playoff series? That seems terrifying to me. Uh, That seems like Jimmy Butler could go like practice in Minnesota level, Jimmy Butler, where he's screaming up into the general manager's boxes. You fucking need me like he did in that final practice in Minnesota. Fateful practice. I don't think it was his final one. Any sort of Jimmy Butler moment like that would not surprise me. And a pissed off Jimmy Butler. Whereas Grape Ape says in the comments, he can go scorched earth. is something that would terrify me if I'm either Boston or Philadelphia, but particularly Philadelphia. I think it's more impressive the way that they defended the New York Knicks uh, throughout the course of the series. I think they had a perfect defensive game plan. Force guys like Quentin Grimes, force guys like Emmanuel Quickly earlier in the series before he got hurt, force guys like Obi Toppin 
like Julius Randle, like RJ Barrett to beat them from beyond the arc. Josh Hart as well. Josh Hart had a really good day today as well, I think, but force Josh Hart, force Barrett, Randall, Grimes, quickly, Toppin to beat you from behind the arc. It's hard for those guys to do that. And it's especially hard for those guys to do that when Julius Randall isn't a hundred percent. And I think it's pretty clear to me that Julius Randall was not a hundred percent from the series. We know he had that late season ankle injury. Ankle injuries don't just get better by playing on them. He played on them early, played on it early in that Cavs series, missed game one, if I remember correctly, then played on it. I think it's just really, really hard for the Knicks to get any sort of movement and driving kick action when they can't rely on Julius Randle to collapse the defense and make passing reads and then get the ball into rotation around the perimeter and get easier open catch and shoot threes that don't result in late heavy closeouts from the heat who are packing the paint and then flying out to close out on shooters. Really interesting stuff. I thought ultimately though, I thought Miami did just enough in this game and throughout the series to manufacture offense. And I think that the biggest key to that today was with Bam Adebayo. I thought Bam Adebayo was tremendous in this game. And I get that Knicks fans are probably furious at Bam Adebayo. So I'm sorry about this ahead of time because I am going to give Bam his flowers. If you're a Knicks fan, I get it. Like I I get you being frustrated about some of the screens. I get being frustrated about the fact that I think he non-purposefully injured four of your guys throughout the course of this season. I don't think Bam's a dirty player. I think he can sometimes like kind of lose, you know, control of where he is like in space at times and he plays physically and he's strong he's not i don't think he's a dirty player i think he is just someone that will at times be very physical in that way what i thought bam did incredibly well today was move without the ball he got it going early he had a couple of post plays but i thought that by moving without the ball he set up different mismatches and i thought that he's did a great job of setting up potential driving angles for Jimmy Butler, especially late in this game, as we'll talk about, not just with his screening, but with his seals. Bam Adebayo goes for 23 points, nine rebounds, only one assist, but two steals in this game, goes nine of 20 from the field. But in a game that was so tight and congested and physical and was basically just like a wrestling match underneath with him and Mitchell Robinson and Kevin Love and Julius Randle and all these guys. Josh Hart's another guy that's happy to get in there. There are so many bodies around the paint constantly in this series on both ends of the floor. I thought the way that Bam opened up just that little bit of space throughout was really, really critical. So let's dive into the tape here and talk a little bit about Bam. So what you're going to see here is Bam is going to set just this little screen here on Jalen Brunson. It's like a, almost like a little slip, but what he does here is he engages Brunson here. And by engaging Brunson, he forces the switch so that Brunson can't recover out onto Gabe Vincent 
in that Mitchell Robinson is forced to go out and guard Gabe Vincent. By engaging him here, I thought that he did a very good job of setting up a real mismatch opportunity for both players on the Miami Heat. So he engages him here and he posts him, right? And I think the Knicks do a great job here of communicating this. Jalen Brunson and Grimes recognize this and they're going to switch this. And Grimes is going to get on him because he's a much better matchup for Bam on the block than Brunson is, certainly. Brunson it almost has to be an Olay and it's going to be a two-point bucket for sure. Bam with a tremendous drop step here. Uh, to get this easy bucket. Bam, just really, really sharp with his off-ball movement today. Here, you're going to see reversal out to love. Bam does his work here on the left wing, as you're going to see at the 445 mark of the first quarter. You're just going to see him create this little move by flashing into the middle of the paint, right? They're playing way off of him. They're overhelping with Isaiah Hartenstein toward the strong side of the court. It's funny. If you remember from the Cavs series, this is actually what I hated the Cavs doing against the Knicks using Jared Allen in game. I believe it was four to way overhelp to the strong side creating open opportunities for someone like Mitchell Robinson to dive and to get to the rim while his man's head was turned. So by overhelping here, because Bam is not a shooter and is on that weak side of the court on the wing, you give Bam plenty of time here to cut and to get very good position for someone who is as strong as he is. This is like kind of a, it's not really a double there by Randall. He just kind of comes into the paint and watches. I didn't really love what Randall did defensively in this game. Obviously didn't love what he did offensively either. But when Bam is able to get the ball here, he's a good enough passer and he's a good enough scorer to be able to create offense in some way, be it for himself or for someone else. This ends up being just a little mini hook shot. He makes it over Hartenstein. Here we go. This is where we're going to start getting into Bam short rolls. And this is where I thought he really made his hay today offensively, both as a passer and as a scorer, mostly as a scorer though. We're going to see here, this is just going to be a perfect little short roll into a jumper. Bam's jumper hasn't always been great, but today he knocked down a couple of them. It was really important for the Miami Heat to get all those jumpers from Bam uh, that he was able to knock down. I think he had three of them, if I remember correctly. So here we go again. Bam at a bio. You're going to see Duncan come across. Traditional Bam Duncan dribble handoff action. They love to try and get Duncan where the uh, man defending Duncan goes under and Duncan just kind of flattens out behind Bam and knocks down a shot from behind the three-point line. Here, Brunson does a great job actually fighting over this screen here. So they reset it back to Bam in the middle of the court. He pitches it back to uh, Kyle Lowry. And then we're going to see this little pocket pass because he sees that Mitchell Robinson is just very slightly out of position here. And if you're very slightly out of position against somebody like Bam, where you're not quite enough in the gap to be able to recover onto him, Bam is athletic enough to where he's going to get downhill and he's going to score every single time. It's going to do it every single time. Easy dunk, easy lane for Bam Adebayo there. Here we go again. Bam comes up, sets a screen. There we go. Pocket pass again. Little jumper for Bam Adebayo. 
Huge, huge shots. Coming down the court again, this time, he takes the outlet. We see a little bit of everything from Bam in this game, right? The shooting, the post game, the off-ball movement, the scoring ability uh, as a leaper dunking at the rim. Incredible player, uh, incredibly valuable player, incredibly versatile player. Here we go. Bam kind of fakes like he's going to set up for a post up, ultimately brings it back out, sets a little screen, another little pocket pass. Pocket pass leads to the kick out to the corner for Gabe Vincent. Easy bucket there. Bam's passing ability that time makes it happen. Okay, here we go. Jimmy's getting trapped here at the seven-minute mark of the fourth quarter. Hits the outlet to Bam. Bam, kicks it back out. And what you're going to see here is that Josh is kind of having to pay attention to Bam because Isaiah Hartenstein's head is turned. Seeing if he has to help Gabe Vincent here on this drive. Because of that, Bam is going to drive and he's going to go up and try and like fake that he's going to go up for this little lob as an outlet pass. Because he does that, Josh Hart actually really has to commit and dive down with Bam to be able to cut that off because Gabe Vincent does actually get by Obi Toppin, which means Hartenstein does get engaged as the help defender. And if Hart doesn't dive down and basically play help onto Bam, it's going to result in an easy dunk. But by doing that, he also opens up the one-on-two on the perimeter. This leads to a Max Struess open three. Of course, Struess knocks it down because Max Struess is always going to knock that down but it could have just as easily led to a Jimmy Butler wide open three as well, because it's a one-on-two on the perimeter with Jalen Brunson. Here we go at the three minute mark of the fourth quarter. Now we're going to see Bam recognizes that Jimmy is going to get this ball back. He gets it back and he realizes that Jimmy's going to try and drive baseline And he has an empty side of the court. So by driving baseline here, look at what Bam does to engage and seal off Mitchell Robinson here so that Mitchell Robinson can't get involved in this play. That means that the only low man defender, the only help defender waiting for Jimmy Butler at the basket is going to be Jalen Brunson. Just really, really smart off-ball movement here. Seals off Mitchell Robinson, makes it so there's no chance he can help. They get the bucket to get to 90 points. Now we're at 1 minute, 14 seconds left. And here we go again. Right now he's like kind of on the block. You can't really see him behind Mitchell Robinson. Uh, Eventually the Knicks, who are down four, they're kind of trapping. They're trying to force a turnover here. Uh, They put two on the ball. Jimmy recognizes where Gabe Vincent is in the middle of the court, and then it's a one-on-two. Vincent engages Mitchell Robinson. Bam goes up for the dunk, throws it down with strength. That's your ball game. Miami Heat win. Once they were up six, it looked like it was going to be hard for the Heat or for the Knicks to come back. They did have a chance. Ultimately, an awesome dig on the backside by Gabe Vincent gets the job done. Really, really. Excellent game, I thought, from Bam Adebayo here, offensively particularly. Did a great job playing to his strengths, playing without the ball, being physical, being aggressive. 
also having real skill level as a short roller knocks down three jumpers in this game plays in that pocket short roll area plays in just that uh, release valve short roll area more at the top of the key. Excellent work from Bam at a bio. Anytime that you can get 20 points from Bam in a game, you're winning Bam averaged, I think like 18 uh, a game this year, something like that. You can get 23 from them. You're in a really good position in a game like this where it was hard to get any points. Uh, with how both of these teams were playing defensively. Awesome series from the New York Knicks. Honestly, I think they deserve a lot of credit. It's going to suck to go out to the Miami Heat, a team that there's a lot of animosity toward. There's a lot of animosity toward Pat Riley, obviously, uh, if you're a Knicks fan. I get that this sucks. I get that this was kind of a miserable series to watch in a lot of respects. So if you're a Knicks fan, it probably wasn't all that fun to watch them kind of struggle through this. Uh, and battle the heat and lose to an eight seed after the fun first round series of defeating the Cavs. But I think that this as much as anything was styles, make fights matchups are ultimately what win in the playoffs or lose in the playoffs. The heat had a much better matchup against the Knicks because the thing that the Knicks need to do is they needed to be able to crash the offensive glass and the heat are one of the best teams in the NBA at dominating the defensive glass. Only have eight offensive rebounds in this game. I feel like practically it was probably a few less than that because it felt like Mitchell Robinson had like a couple like missed tips that probably counted as offensive rebounds. I thought that by controlling the defensive glass, making it so that you can't give up easy points to Mitchell Robinson, making it so you don't have to defend multiple possession after possession after possession uh, if you're Miami, it really allowed them to focus on the fundamentals of packing the paint and closing out late. Uh, really good sound defensive strategy from Eric Spolstra. Really good overall positive performance from the Heat. And I think that Knicks fans should be super happy with the way this season went. Let's talk a little bit about the Knicks offseason now. There's not a crazy amount for the Knicks to like really truly do unless they want to dive into the star market. Uh, I know that... I, I saw what Stephen A said after the game where he just immediately wants Julius Randle traded because his effort and intensity level can be contagious, essentially, was the idea. And when his shot isn't falling, he can be a little bit less engaged defensively, let's go with. I think all that's true, by the way. I, I don't mind that. I, I don't think the take is false. But then he just mentions, like, they got to go get Damian Lillard. They got to go get Carl Anthony Towns. First and foremost, two very different players, two very different skill sets, two very different, like, players in terms of playoff effectiveness, by the way. Uh, We're going to find out, I think, probably on lottery night, maybe. Uh, Maybe not on lottery night, but I think we're going to find out – a potential for Damian Lillard to get traded on lottery night. If Portland wins the lottery and they end up with Victor Wembanyama, like that's a perfect setup for Lillard moving forward. You retain uh, Jeremy Grant, you retain Shaden Sharp, Anthony Simons, you have Vic, you rock next year. I think you see where it takes you for sure with Dame. And I would bet that Dame would like be enthused by that. Uh, I would bet that he'd be excited to see where he can take that team. Uh, He's, you know, unfortunately, since LaMarcus Aldridge moved on, he hasn't really had that 
truly great big man, it feels like. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic had a couple of okay years, but like they don't really have that, right? So I think it'd be difficult for the Knicks to trade for Damian Lillard. It would result in them having to give up an enormous amount of their draft capital moving forward. And by the way, like Damian Lillard definitely solves problems for them because Damian Lillard is unbelievable at basketball. But if you're the Knicks and if you're Portland particularly, what what are you acquiring in this deal from a salary ballast perspective as much as anything is kind of what I'm wondering? I don't really want Julius Randle back in a Damian Lillard deal. I don't know why I would want that because if I'm moving Damian Lillard and I'm hopefully likely building around, you know, shade and sharp and Simons and whoever I get back from the Knicks high draft pick this year, whatever I can potentially get in a sign and trade for Jeremy Grant. Julius Randall doesn't really make sense for me at that point. So if you're the Blazers, what what do the Knicks have that you truly really want? I guess RJ Barrett, maybe RJ Barrett had a good playoff run. He was terrible today. Went one for 10. He had a good playoff run. I wonder if maybe that would be intriguing. That gets you halfway there in terms of salary. You know, Yvonne Fournier has a club option after, the 2023-24 season. So it'd be like Barrett, Fournier, and then like what you try and get quickly in Grimes in that deal. And then you try and get as many draft picks as possible, you know, three or four draft picks. That's realistically what it's going to take to acquire Damian Lillard if you're the Knicks. I know that that sounds like a lot, but we just saw what the price was for Kevin Durant. It was extensive and it was expansive. And I think Lillard, given that he's coming off of an all NBA year, probably costs just as much, if only because we're in a star trade marketplace right now where there is a dearth of stars available. There are not many of them. And there is an exorbitant amount of teams that want them. Every team would love to have a star except for maybe the bottom five. So that results in prices increasing because you don't really have a replacement option right now. If you don't acquire Damian Lillard, as Stephen A. said, your replacement option might be Carl Towns. And that's a bad contract that you're acquiring. Carl Towns has shown very little in the playoffs in terms of his overall ability to make an impact. And oh, by the way, he's on $36 million next year. Sure. For the next three years, he makes $162 million before a player option that is $62 million in 2027-28. That's not a deal that I want if I'm the Knicks. And I think the Knicks have done a great job of keeping the cap sheet open and keeping things flexible for potential stars that come available. If I'm them, I'm waiting for a star to come available that I love. I don't know if it's 
Damian Lillard, to be honest. I love Damian Lillard. He's, you know, one of my five favorite players in the league. I think he's a stud. I think he's coming off of maybe his best season of his career. Damian Lillard, also 32 years old and turns 33 in July and has played a million minutes in his NBA career. And I think he's going to age well because if there's one thing we know about Damian Lillard, it's that the work ethic is unbelievable. But like, does aging well mean two more great years? Three more? I don't know. The other problem for the Knicks moving forward now, though, is that some of their young players are coming up on potential extensions that get expensive. Emmanuel quickly is probably going to cost over $20 million a year. Could be more, to be honest. I think if he would hit the open market, he might get more than that, especially with the way the cap is going to rise moving forward. I think he's a long-term starting point guard in the NBA. He's an incredible defensive player. Uh, He is someone that I really, truly value in the league. I know he's coming off of a rough playoff run. You know, I think he gets $20 million at the very least. Quentin Grimes is extension eligible next year. If Quentin Grimes takes another leap, you're ecstatic if you're the Knicks. But then you have to pay Quentin Grimes. And that would be starting in the 2025-26 year. The good news is that, you know, Yvonne Fournier's money comes off the books next year. That will be helpful. Derek Rose's money comes off the books this year. That will be helpful. But you have Julius Randle at 30. You have Jalen Brunson at 25. You have RJ Barrett at 25. By the way, the Knicks do a really good job, I think, of structuring their contracts. The Jalen Brunson deal actually decreases in value which is going to be really important for them moving forward, uh, especially with how the CBA structures potential extensions moving forward, where you can now offer up to 140% of a player's last year on his contract, which means in the case of Jalen Brunson, in that final year in 2025-26, they can probably offer him a contract starting in like $32 million a year which will probably be a fairly interesting offer, I would imagine, for him. Something in that ballpark. What you do with Randall is an interesting question. I don't know that I value him quite as much as, you know, an all-NBA level player over in two of the last three years would make him seem to be. But his deal isn't terrible. I mean, he's on 28 million next year. He's a player option for 32 million in 2025-26. Ultimately, the only things I'm looking for here are the Knicks is if I can go find a star. It's also worth noting very briefly, Josh Hart has like this weird mutual option where he has a player option at 12.96 and then like a non-guarantee or something like that. Um It essentially operates as like a mutual option. I would imagine the team works out a deal with Josh Hart. He's very, very close to Jalen Brunson, obviously. I would imagine that that played a role in acquiring him. And 
they can actually stay under the tax if they offer Josh Hart something in the ballpark of a contract that starts at like 17 million a year. Uh, I don't know if I want to pay 17 a year for Josh Hart necessarily, but if you're starting it and then like it's pretty flat or it decreases moving forward again, they've structured their contracts like that previously. You could maybe get into a ballpark where it's like a what four year, $60 million contract, $62 million contract in that ballpark. And that might be a pretty solid contract. I would think for Josh Hart to sign. I would definitely retain Josh Hart if I was them. It's just hard to find the stars that are available right now, league-wide. Two could eventually come available from Phoenix, you know, if you consider Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton stars. But you have a great point guard and Jalen Brunson and Chris Paul doesn't fit your age timeline. And then you already have Mitchell Robinson who might be better than DeAndre Ayton right now. So those two don't really help you. Those could be two interesting potential trade targets. Bradley Beal could come available, maybe. Bradley Beal has something like four years left on his deal at $200 million ballpark it. I don't know if I give up the world for Bradley Beal. I'd rather give up the world for Damian Lillard. But again, I don't know if they have the best offer on the table for Damian Lillard either. If you're trading Damian Lillard to the New York Knicks, who already have Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, you know, Mitchell Robinson, probably maybe Mitchell Robinson. That's going to be hard. Because those picks probably don't have crazy value at that point. Look, betting on the Knicks to flounder and fail in some regard hasn't been the worst strategy over the course of the last 20 years. But I think this front office is actually pretty good. And they're in an enormous market and they have like a pretty good infrastructure, it feels like. If I'm moving Damian Lillard, I'm thinking I could get probably a better centerpiece than Emmanuel quickly from somebody else. which means the Knicks would just have to way over offer in terms of like future picks. They'd have to offer like five or six picks and given the timeline for Damian Lillard. I don't know if I love that plan as a long-term strategy. It's going to be very difficult. I think for the Knicks this off season in this front office has not been one that has chosen to skip steps throughout the course of its tenure. I think Leon Rose has been really smart about the way that he has gone about his business, about the way he structured contracts, about the way that he has been very considerate in leaving himself outs and flexibility to set them up for success moving forward. So I say all of that to say, I don't think I would go and acquire Carl Anthony Towns first and foremost. Uh, that doesn't seem interesting to me if I'm the Knicks. I also don't know if I'm excited by Damian Lillard. And I also don't know that I, I'm excited by Damian Lillard for them, but like, I don't know that I'm paying the exorbitant price tag it would take. It's good. I think it's going to be a little bit tough. I think it's going to be a little bit tougher for them than people think to find that star that's available on the market. 
Okay, let's take one more quick commercial break, and then we're going to talk more about Phoenix than Denver here moving forward. Okay, let's dive into the Phoenix Suns. Phoenix Suns were eliminated by the Denver Nuggets last night. I think the final score was like 125 to 100. Game was never close. It was a blowout. Uh, I think it was like a 30-point game You know, by the time the you know, second quarter rolled around. DeAndre Ayton did not play in that game. Uh, he had a rib issue, rib contusion, if I remember correctly. Chris Paul did not play in that game groin strain held him out after game two in this series. If I'm Phoenix, I have to make some real substantial changes. I'm all in on them acquiring Kevin Durant. I think that was a great move for them. If only because Kevin Durant is one of the best basketball players to ever play and pairing him with Devin Booker is good long-term. You have two real shot creators. They didn't just do this for this year. I think that was like kind of a misnomer about this. The goal was not to, the goal was to win a title this year. Let's be very clear about that. But they knew that they had flexibility moving forward to rebuild around those two. And the hardest things to find in the NBA are true superstars. I love Mikael Bridges. Again, probably one of my 10 favorite players in the NBA to watch. I literally just did a podcast back in March with Jason Timpf on this show talking about how I think Mikael Bridges is a future all-star. There's a difference between Kevin Durant and Mikael Bridges. And if you can go out and acquire Kevin Durant and you can fill in the gaps around Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, you have to feel pretty good about doing it. Now, the issue for Phoenix moving forward, and I do wonder how much of this they knew ahead of time in terms of how the new CBA would be structured. It becomes harder to fill in the gaps when you have an enormous payroll. Phoenix right now, I believe, would be over the second apron by retaining both DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul next year, which means they would not have access to the mini mid-level. Yeah, they, they would be over the second apron as I'm looking at it. Shout out to Track. Big fans here. The Game Theory Podcast. So that means that they are going to have to move Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton for multiple pieces. And as Krishna Vedantam says... Filling out those gaps leaves them at such a minor margin for error. They do have a very small margin for error, but here's the thing. Once you get to this level of like NBA success and you've capped yourself out like they had, you have such little, you know, margin for error as it is. You really do. Like one team out of 30 wins every year. The NBA is so wide open right now. There are, realistically eight teams that we thought entering this playoffs that had a real chance to win it. 
you're always going to have a limited margin for error. Eventually, Oklahoma City, the team that has like the most margin for error league-wide right now, because they have four like max guys on rookie-scale deals, eventually those guys are going to graduate into second contracts. And that's around the time that the, that the Thunder will likely start competing in the playoffs and for a championship. And they're going to have no margin for error at that point. So that's the reality of the situation. A couple of things worth noting for the Phoenix Suns here. Contractually, Chris Paul has two years left. In the first year, he makes $30.8 million. About $15 million of that is guaranteed. If they really, truly wanted to get rid of Chris Paul and cut him, they could do so by stretching him and save essentially all but $3.2 million uh, on their salary cap books this year. I don't think they'll do that. I would rather have Chris Paul's salary as a potential trade chip. I think that is the more valuable thing for them moving forward unless they can straight dump DeAndre Ayton into somebody's space. And then you're sitting here with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant making a combined $84 million, you know, Landry Shaman at $94 million. And then you have like another max cap spot if you really want. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. It is worth noting as like a non-zero thing, I guess, that, is not impossible, but I'd be stunned by that. Uh, uh, like it's like a one percenter. It feels like to me. Also, there's not like a great option out there in terms of spending a max cap spot. So I don't think that's the route I would go. I would go the trade route. I would move both of these guys, Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton. Here's the reason. Feels like DeAndre Ayton's time's up is in time's up is uh, time is up. Goodness in Phoenix. He's quite poor in the playoffs this year. The thing that you could always sell yourself on with DeAndre Ayton was that he'd step up in the playoffs and that he was the kind of playoff player after their title run in 2021, where they went to the finals, whose mobility defensively whose activity defensively, whose athleticism would continue to improve. He played very physically. He would continue to grow into his frame. Over the last two years, he has really bottomed out defensively in a truly substantial way. He was hurting them on defense not quite as much as he was hurting them on offense, but a lot. I think you got to move DeAndre Ayton. I also think you have to move Chris Paul. I love Chris Paul as a player. I don't think you can trust Chris Paul at this point to get through an entire playoff run where you have to play games every other day, given his history of soft tissue injuries. That sucks to say. I hate it. It's horrible. I think it's also 
realistic because he hasn't been able to do it over the course of the last few years. And if you are a title or bust team like the Phoenix Suns are moving forward, and that is where they are, they are a, we are trying to win a championship or it is a failure team because we made our all-in move for Kevin Durant. I don't think you can trust Chris Paul at this point to get through an entire playoff run. And if you can't trust him to get through an entire playoff run when he's already on a $30 million salary block, given how onerous the new CBA is in terms of high spending teams, you can't really retain him. It sucks, but I think it is true. Unfortunately, that's not to say that Chris Paul won't be valuable elsewhere. I think he would be very valuable elsewhere. But I don't think that you can necessarily count on him in the way that you would hope. So let's start with moving both of these guys. Who makes sense for DeAndre Ayton? The obvious one is Indiana. Indiana signed him to a Offer sheet last season in restricted free agency. I don't know how much interest they still have in him. Maybe quite a bit, maybe very little. I don't know. But they did just get Miles Turner on what is now an incredible sweetheart extension number. Miles Turner over the next two years is only going to make basically... Forty million dollars. He's going to make twenty point nine seven five next year, and he's going to make nineteen point nine in twenty twenty four twenty five. Now that I have him locked in, I would not be moving him for DeAndre Ayton. And if I have him locked in, I don't think I'm interested really in DeAndre Ayton. So I feel like. Indiana, while they might, it's worth noting, like this front office just really might like DeAndre Ayton a lot and is willing to go to bat for it and just go for it. It's not what I would do if I was Indiana. Maybe you could make a case for San Antonio. If San Antonio, for some reason, falls on draft night, and they end up in a circumstance where they have the fifth overall pick, maybe even the third overall pick. They don't end up with Victor Wembanyama. This is a team whose centers next year that are signed are Zach Collins, Ken Birch. And then they have, like, I think a cap hold on Sandro Mamukelishvili. They have a real need on the interior. Could you maybe do something like Trey Jones and something else, but like Trey Jones then would require a sign and trade because he is a restricted free agent this year. So that's not ideal. Teams that acquire guys that you get via sign and trade, then automatically hard cap themselves and given Phoenix's likelihood to be spending at a high level, I don't know that that is a realistic potential avenue for them. Maybe you could get, I don't think you get Devin Vassell. I don't think you get 
mean, may, maybe you could get Kelton Johnson. San Antonio would have to love DeAndre Ayton, though. I wouldn't do that if I was San Antonio. But I don't think we could, like, 100% rule out San Antonio for DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre Ayton, San Antonio also has all of their picks moving forward. They also have... Uh, yeah, they have all of their picks moving forward. They have a Toronto pick coming as well. Maybe Phoenix decides to dump Aiton into their salary cap space and acquire pick capital for him in some regard. The three teams that make the most sense for me. For DeAndre Aiton. I'll start at number three. Dallas, I think, is an interesting option. Dallas is a real need for someone with size on the interior. It does not seem like Christian Wood will likely be back there. Dwight Powell is an unrestricted free agent. And JaVale McGee is their only center currently on the books. You could do something maybe like a Tim Hardaway, Reggie Bullock kind of deal that gets you right in the ballpark in terms of money. If you just want to do like a two for one contract kind of thing. And if you're Dallas, you have to hope that a Luca Kyrie Aiton core is enough and that that is something that will impress Luca. Luca tends to be pretty intense on the court. I don't know how he would react to some of DeAndre Ayton's. Maybe let's go with this. Some of what we saw from DeAndre Ayton this year in terms of body language. We've seen DeAndre Ayton be active and aggressive and engaged in a lot in a lot of moments. This year it did not happen. I think that's going to be really hard. I think that's going to be not quite the best fit for Dallas. But if Dallas really runs out of options and really runs out of a potential move, may, maybe you can imagine yourself doing that. The sneaky one that I think is interesting is Chicago. What happens if Nikola Vucevic signs somewhere else, wherever that may be? This team is left without any like real option at center. Andre Drummond is, you know, at $3.3 million player option next year. They have, uh, you know, Marco Simonovic signed, I guess. Uh, Sure. They don't really have an answer here in terms of the center position long-term. And I wonder, is there a world where they could see DeAndre Ayton is their long-term answer there? This is a front office that, Hasn't had a whole lot of success so far. You have to wonder if Arturis Karnisovic could maybe feel a little bit of pressure to try and get something done around this core that he created of Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Patrick Williams, Alex Caruso. What would you get if you're Phoenix then? I think you 
probably need to try and get Caruso. I think I would frankly rather have Alex Caruso for the next two years at $9.5 million than DeAndre Ayton for the next three at, you know, hundred million dollars. So I don't know if I'd include him, but maybe you could get Chicago to do that. Maybe Chicago is desperate, right? But again, Kobe White's a restricted free agent, so you can't really make that work at a high level. Again, going to be really hard with the collective bargaining agreement to sign and trade for somebody in a deal like this, I think. Maybe you get Dale and Terry, but this is a team that's trying to win now and Dale and Terry is a real project. I mean, maybe you could just like try and do Aiton for DeRozan and the Bulls see it as Levine and Aiton as their long-term core. That seems like some, I love Zach Levine, but that's not an ideal circumstance to me. I don't think you can trust Lonzo Ball moving forward, given that we have no idea what's going on with his injury history. It's going to be really hard, I think, for Chicago to make that work. I'm a little bit skeptical on their fit, but I could see them maybe getting a little bit desperate if Vucevic signs somewhere else. The top option is Portland if they lose the lottery on Tuesday. It is somewhat easy to imagine a Yusuf Nurkic and other stuff deal. You can imagine Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, Shaden Sharp, Jeremy Grant, DeAndre Ayton as a core moving forward. Maybe they retain Cam Reddish. Maybe they retain Matisse Thibel. You know, this team could be at least a little bit interesting, right? And if they decide that we want to give Dame one last shot, they really need to upgrade at the center position because Yusuf Nurkic did not give them anything this year. He was really, really poor on the defensive end. So Portland's kind of the top option, but if I'm taking back that Nurkic deal, I actually want something of value from Portland. Maybe that's where draft capital comes in. They have the 23rd overall pick. They have, you know, a couple of other picks moving forward that you could maybe envision a circumstance of them being willing to give up. And then you turn around, you move 23 for something else, you move, you know, the other stuff for something else. I think it's going to be really, really hard to make that work. It's not the easiest spot to find for DeAndre Ayton. I think those are the three best spots. I'll at least mention Charlotte. If I was Charlotte, I'd just be happy to continue developing Mark Williams. But next year is the last year of Gordon Hayward's deal. Could Phoenix just decide Gordon Hayward and something else? for DeAndre Ayton, and then you continue to let Mark Williams grow slowly? Could they just really love DeAndre Ayton and move like Gordon Hayward and Mark Williams? That feels like a terrible idea, but Charlotte hasn't exactly always been the most rational actor in the trade market and in the free agency market. 
maybe Terry Rozier and a realistic offer. I do think could be something like Gordon Hayward and Cody Martin for DeAndre Ayton. If Charlotte decides we don't actually want to build around Mark Williams at center, I would just do that if I was them hand raised, right? That I'm Charlotte fans do not be upset with me. I would rather just build around Mark Williams and see where it goes. But if they decide they want to be better next year, or at least try and build something around LaMelo ball, if they unfortunately bring back Miles Bridges, retain Gordon Hayward, retain PJ Washington, maybe something like Gordon Hayward and Cody Martin for DeAndre Ayton is somewhat interesting. Gordon Hayward really helps Devin Booker and Kevin Durant because of his unselfishness and floor spacing. Cody Martin's just a really smart team defender who has really developed into being a very good rotation player. That's the kind of two-for-one deal that you can wrap your arms around and go, that's not disastrous. I guess we should at least mention the Detroit Pistons, just given their affinity for bigs. I can't imagine them like really truly going for this given that they already have all of Jalen Duran, James Wiseman, Marvin Bagley, and Isaiah Stewart. Again, I would just build around Jalen Duran. That's a better play for them. You never know with the Detroit Pistons and Biggs that hit the market. That's really all I'm seeing out there, though. I don't think Sacramento is going to do something like this. Toronto just filled its need in the middle with Jakob Pertl. Maybe if Jakob Pertl decides to sign elsewhere, possibly, but it doesn't seem like that is coming. Like a, it feels like they have a lot of comfort there with Jakob Pertl. Also, if I'm Toronto and I already have Pascal Siakam and I'm building around him and Scotty Barnes, I probably want more of a spacing big than DeAndre Ayton has proven to be. Jakob Pertl can pass. He's a really great screen center. He actually does have real gravity despite the fact that he can't shoot. I'd rather do that. I don't know if DeAndre Ayton makes sense for them. So the options here are limited. Washington already has Kristaps Porzingis. Houston already has Alperin Shengun, and I would much rather just continue to play him at center. They also have a you know fourteen percent chance at Victor Wembanyama coming up. It's hard for me to find the answer for DeAndre Ayton. Chris Paul, on the other hand, I think will be relatively easy to move because Chris Paul is on an expiring deal essentially. It's very easy for me to sell myself on Chris Paul if I am like a young team that needs an adult. If I'm Chris Paul, I probably want to go elsewhere and probably want to compete. But like if I'm, let's say, Charlotte, is there a world where we could do Terry Rozier and Cody Martin for Chris Paul you let LaMelo Ball learn and play next to Chris Paul for a year. That could help him, I think, a lot, actually. And the development that you get from that 
of having LaMelo ball next to Chris Paul, learning from him, learning how to control the tempo of the game, I think could be beneficial for LaMelo long-term in ways that you get beyond long-term value. But the goal here is two-for-one deals. I think if you're Phoenix, you're trying to fill out the depth of your roster. Maybe it's two-for-one in terms of assets, and then you try and move the, you know, whatever pick, 23rd, 17th, whatever it is. Pick, who knows? It's going to be complicated, though. I do think there's some synergy between Charlotte and Phoenix, potentially. You can at least make a case that that's somewhat interesting. But I don't know what they do. I don't think this is going to be an easy offseason for Phoenix. But I do think I would try and move on from both of them in two-for-one style deals. Maybe not necessarily uh, two-for-one players. I would go two-for-one asset value. Uh where I'm able to remove them from my roster and pick up multiple things that allow me to then go out elsewhere and get value. Uh, The other thing with Phoenix that's worth noting, James Jones throughout the years, especially last year in an article with Kevin Arnovitz, has been very clear that they don't value the draft as much as other teams. There are two things that have changed there in recent years, really recent months. First, Matt Ishbia bought the team and just might have different feelings on that. We don't know. Chris Haynes reported earlier that the Phoenix Suns fired two scouts and an executive. I don't think those names have been released yet. If I've missed that, I apologize. But as far as I know, those teams have not been released in terms of, or those names have not been released. Could be some cleaning up in the front office and could be a change in strategy. You can see a world where while James Jones does not value the draft, maybe Matt Ishbia does. He obviously moved all those picks for Kevin Durant, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't value having young players on cost-controlled deals, especially with this second point here. The new CBA, if you're going to be an exorbitant spender, really values getting high-level draft picks and getting guys that can come in and be valuable for you and can come in and be cost-controlled. The draft is more valuable than ever under this new collective bargaining agreement. And I wonder if James Jones will see that or if Matt Ishbia will see that and decide that we need to make some changes in regard to our strategy in the draft. We will see, but I'm very intrigued to watch what they end up getting back in deals for Deandre Ayton and Chris Paul. I would bet you that the league in general has a much better valuation of those two players than I personally might, which makes it a little bit hard for me to find the exact deals. But it is not the easiest thing in the world to find exact deals, as we just kind of went through on this show. Okay. In terms of what I'm looking for, I would certainly like rim protection and ball movement. 
And obviously you need shooting for Devin Booker drafts. Those are the main things. Those are the three things you look for. If you can find those, you're in pretty good shape, I think. But they're not going to be the easiest thing to find because teams really value those things in terms of processing speed, valuation, etc. This is not the last time I will talk about the Suns, I am certain. I will probably have someone like Kellen Olsen or a really, really sharp Phoenix person come on again and talk about this with me because, again, I'm struggling to find the right moves for them. But I think I'm struggling to find the right moves for them because I don't know if I would want to acquire this version of DeAndre Ayton given what we saw in the playoffs. And this comes from me, someone that was really high on DeAndre Ayton basically up until like the end of last year uh, with what we saw. So that's all I've got. Uh, Folks, go to The Athletic uh, next week. I will have quite a bit of content coming up. I had a redraft for the 2022 NBA draft go up last week. I also will have a mock draft coming up. I will have a some sort of lottery analysis coming up afterward. I have a few other things on the docket coming up next week that I'm really excited about. The NBA draft combine is next week. I'm certain that I will be talking about that with Mark Schindler, Adam Spinella, etc. over the course of next week. We're definitely getting into draft season. Go to the YouTube channel. Please uh, hit that subscribe button. That is the best way for you to get content uh, from the podcast. You get it immediately. You get it live as I talk through it. It's by far the best. And you get the tape breakdowns that we did earlier today on Anthony Davis and Bam Adebayo. You get to watch them. It helps a little bit more when you get to see them. It's a better process. Best way for you to watch the show. Second best way for you to hear the show is just subscribe on Apple, Spotify, whatever podcasting platform you use. It's always there. We're podcasting four or five times a week at this point in the playoffs and during the draft cycle. It's going to be there a lot. So come join us, check it out, hit that subscribe button. It'll be a great time. Uh, I think that's all I've got though. We've been on for an hour 55, so I'm going to call it. Lots to talk about today because the Knicks, Suns, and Warriors have all been eliminated. We'll talk about the Nuggets and Lakers at some point early next week. We will talk about the Celtics 76ers series probably on Sunday in the United States because that game is going to be tremendous and I'm super excited to watch it. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.